0: What a joy to be home. Um, Yeah, thank you, those uh, four of you who are excited. Yeah, yeah, let's go, you know. Uh, Who are you? (laughs) My name is Spencer. I enjoy long walks on the beach and um, no, I'm just kidding. It's so good to see you. Uh, what a joy and a delight to be back. Um, Jordan and I have been wanting to be back for quite some time and are incredibly, incredibly excited to be together again. Um, I will say that in our prayer time, there was one prayer that we forgot to, uh, to give, and that is a prayer of thanksgiving for all the parents who are sending their kids back to school. In Jesus' name, thank you, God, for school, right? Um, but no, it's so, uh, so exciting to be together again. Um, we miss you all so, so terribly, but uh, we are beyond grateful for the opportunity to have um, gotten away, to, to rest, and to relax, and to reflect, and to uh, recreate with no responsibilities Uh, Some of you know this, some of you don't, but I actually um, had a track phone for my entire sabbatical. Come on, Walmart track phone. Motorola G, do not recommend that phone. I'll be honest with you. It's a little clunky, um, but it got the job done. And uh, I enjoyed the time away and only having seven contacts in my phone. It was wonderful. that being said, it has truly produced uh, such happiness to hear how God and how the Spirit has worked in this community throughout the summer. I'm um, Just hearing about all the things that you guys have been doing and the stories of how God has moved and hearing about dinner of eights. Hello, I'm jealous. Like, I was coveting the whole time when you guys were having meals together. Uh, how wonderful that was, and to see the archer beautification day and the field day and the social you guys did together, and just to hear about what God has been doing on Sunday mornings and transformation and breakthrough and deliverance and prophecy and declaration. God's doing something in this place, and we just want to join him in that. We just want to continue on in what he is doing in this community. Now, you may be wondering, how was your sabbatical? Did you experience divine revelation from the manifest glory of God on Mount Sinai. Um, No, we did not experience, uh, you know, a firework display of glory on a mountaintop uh, in Israel. Um, But though we did uh, hike a little bit, but it was great uh, to be able just to pause and to be encountered in the ordinary and the mundane moments of our day. So from the bottom of our hearts, um, we thank you. And we are grateful. We felt so honored and so missed and are so... um, indebted to you guys, providing that space for Jordan and I. We do also have a new addition to our family. Um, His name is Judah, and uh, we actually call him Professor Smudge. That is his nickname. You are free to call him Professor Smudge. I actually have a picture of you for him. Yeah, check him out, Professor Smudge. Um, His uh, alter ego is as an archaeologist. Um, I'll be honest, I'm working that out right now, but this is what we call him. So, Um, Judah or Professor Smudge, either one works for us. Um, That being said, one of the wonderful gifts of this young community and young church is to have a variety of voices and people who have the capacity and the competency to teach the scriptures and to preach from the platform. Such a rare gift that we have Uh, And each summer during ordinary time, which that's the season we're in in the liturgical calendar, ordinary time, which I love that the calendar gives half of the time to the ordinary. God will meet you most likely and most of the time in the ordinary spaces, not the extraordinary. He whispers. And he moves in in very simple ways. But in ordinary time throughout the summer, we usually try to walk slowly through one of the 27 New Testament books. You know, last year we went on a a journey through Romans. Some of us are still recovering from that journey (laughs) through through Romans. And this year we have been in the book of Hebrews. Though I don't know if it has been uh, any easier than Romans. (laughs) But thankfully, uh, all during my sabbatical, All these other wonderful voices have done the heavy lifting in navigating the complexities and the challenging aspects of this letter or this sermon, and I was left with uh, wrapping things up with the easiest part, addressing the last two chapters, Hebrews chapter 12 and Hebrews chapter 13. So thank you for all of you who did the heavy lifting that I don't have to do. I'm very grateful for that. Um, Hebrews at a high level, just a quick overview, is broken down into five main parts Chapters 1 and 2, chapters 3 and 4, chapters 5 through 7, 8 through 10, and 11 through 13. I'm not going to summarize all of it. You can totally go back, and I would encourage you to go back and listen to the podcast, or just go watch the Bible Project. It's very helpful as you study the Scriptures uh, in your own time. Uh, Learning is a practice in our community, a rhythm, and we want you in the Scriptures. But the verses that sum up all of Hebrews and provide kind of the direction are in just the first few verses in Hebrews chapter 1. And I want to read those to you once more, once again. Here's what it says, the first few verses in the book of Hebrews. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. The direction of Hebrews, in some ways, feels like it's looking to the past, into history. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. Colossians 1 speaks the reality that Jesus holds all things together. That he is the center of the entire created cosmos. And all of the created world was made through him. The sun is key emphasis here. The radiance of God's glory. Someone say radiance. The radiance, the brilliance, the beauty, the power of God's glory. His, His beautiful power. And he's the exact representation or the character, the image of his being. Sustaining all things. Once again, it connotes the idea of holding or bearing all things together at the center of the cosmos. Meaning, if you remove Jesus of Nazareth, all things will in fact disintegrate and fall apart. Not just in our own personal life, but in all of the created order the created world. This idea also connotes the idea of leading. He bears the weight of leading creation into a specific direction, and he does so by his powerful word. Remember, all of the world came into existence because why? God spoke it into existence. After he had provided purification for sin, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Notice this royal language. Dare I say sovereign language presented here in Hebrews. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. The underlying principle that we want to take away from this whole book in all of its complexity is the supremacy or the superiority or the centrality of Jesus the Christ. Jesus of Nazareth, the incarnate one. But I just wanted to point this out for us briefly. That the writer of Hebrews, which we have learned all about the historical context and connection to Israel's history, prophecies, and laws, is saying to us, the reader, that Jesus fulfills all things, is above all things, and the entire cosmos was created and is sustained through him. But even more so, the promises of God to Israel find their ultimate satisfaction and fruition in Messiah Jesus. Messiah is... Another word for king or for ruler in all of the promises of God to Israel, find their satisfaction in and fruition in Messiah Jesus and in his mission in the world. But if we're not careful in this text, we only look backwards at the supremacy of Jesus. We only look back into history at his superiority. We only look back at the fact that he fulfills all things. We only look back at the reality that he is above all things. But if he is above the entire created world and right now is sitting at the right hand of God, that also means that his rule and reign does not stop in the past, but it continues through the future. The redemptive rule and reign and sovereignty and kingship and lordship of the incarnate Christ moves through Jesus and out into the world. It doesn't just stop in the past, but it moves into the future. I have a picture for you. Just if you journal, if you got your moleskin and you're you know, a little artist, draw this out as a way to, to think through Hebrews. It's not just that Jesus is the is compilation of Israel's past, but he is also fulfilling and above all things into the future, even to this very moment right now. He is sustaining all things. He's above all things. He is the center of all things. This isn't just the story of Israel in the past, but the story of the world into the future. Jesus is, friends, supreme. He is now central. He will be supreme. He will be central. He is superior and he will be superior. He's not just king of Israel, but he is king of the cosmos, king of the world. He is above all rule and reign and governments and authorities across the universe. And not only that, but he is, and this is key, better. A lot of sermon series going through the book of Hebrews sometimes are called Jesus is better. Someone say that. Jesus is better. That's what it means to be superior. That's what it means to be supreme. He is better. One definition of better, it says, of a more excellent quality. He is high quality, family. He is the highest quality. He is the highest form of superiority and, and supremeness. Now, the word better is interesting because it's a comparative word meaning that the object is being compared to another object. A couple of examples in my own personal life. All right, Some of you might disagree with me. That's okay. We can talk after and have a little moment. Um, Krispy Kreme is better than Dunkin' Donuts. Okay? A couple other things. Now, this might really ruffle some feathers. Are you ready for this? I think Mario's Pizza is better than Kajino. I do. If you want to debate that, we can debate it. Okay, I think it's better. Um, A couple other examples. I think North Carolina is better than South Carolina. Okay, I'm just saying, way better. Okay, you know, I'm just, Myrtle Beach, what? No, have it, have it, okay? If that offends you, you, thanks for coming today. It's good to have you. Um, Another quick example, um, Marvel is better than DC. Okay, you got me? So Why? Because we think that the quality is better. Okay? The quality is better. It's a word of comparison. And the very fact that Jesus is called superior or better requires us, all of us, to ask this question in almost every decision and desire that we face as individuals and human beings, especially as the people of God. Does Jesus have a better way? In every decision and desire and behavior and moment that you face in your life or you're at a crossroads, you have to ask the question, does Jesus have a better way? You're, you're forced because he is superior. If you trust the scriptures, you're forced to ask that question. Does he have a better way? When you're conflicting heart and intuition clashes with his wisdom and teaching, we have to trust that his vision is better than our own. When your chaotic inner being clashes with what Jesus is calling you and I to, we have to trust that his vision is better than our own. It's more superior. And to trust in Jesus as Lord which is salvation, by the way, fundamentally is a yielding of our own sense of self-autonomy and self-authority. And this is anathema in 2023. This is like heresy, like we are the heretics of culture. But to say that Jesus is Lord is fundamentally to yield or to surrender, to submit our own sense of self-autonomy and self-authority, or what the um, Catholic priest Adrian von Kamm calls our autarchic self. To submit to his, uh, his superiority or his supremeness is to say at all times, what you want for me is better than what I feel I want for myself. He is better than that influencer on TikTok. He is better than that pipe psychology book that you read. He's better than Brene Brown. He's better than Kurt Thompson. He's better than John Mark Homer, in Jesus' name. He is better. He is better than that relationship. His vision is better than your way of thinking. He is better. His vision is better. His wisdom is better. His instruction is better. And we have to say, if we trust Jesus as Lord, what you want for me is better than what I feel I want for myself. This is what it means to practice faith. Faith is not a moment, friends. Faith is a practice. It is a practice. And by the way, it's a human practice, not a religious practice. It is to put our, as Matt mentioned last week, Matt Leroy, to put our trust and allegiance into someone or something, believing that their vision of life is going to produce what it promises. We are all people of faith. Someone asked me in our community one time they said, "How'd you become a person of faith?" And I said, "By being human. You just have to decide and choose where to put your faith. Uh, theologian Mildred's, Mildred Bangs Wine Coop, who is someone that um, I would encourage you to write her name down. She's wonderful. I enjoy all of her writing. Here's what she says about faith. You know I have some quotes coming today, okay? Here's what she says. She says, faith, also look at her. I mean, come on, grandma, yes. <laughs> faith must always have enough self-awareness to reject one thing and enough to accept another. Faith, by definition, is a rejection of one thing and an accepting of another. She goes on to say, it is precisely the end of self-sufficiency that gives meaning to saving faith. The antithesis to saving faith is not no faith or passivity, but active rejection. To not have our faith in Jesus is to reject Jesus, not to just be a neutral person or to be passive. Because that means you're putting your faith elsewhere. You have to choose as a human being where your faith goes. Now, underneath the whole book of Hebrews, there are two themes and threads that you may not have even noticed are there. But reveal for us the appropriate response to the supremacy and superiority of Jesus. The first is faith. This thread is all throughout the book of Hebrews. I mean, Hebrews 11. Like when we think about faith, how do you define faith? Well, we go to Hebrews chapter 11. And as I mentioned last week, Matt defined it as allegiance and trust. It's not just an intellectual assent or a belief, but it's believing, trusting, obeying. And this word faith occurs 36 times throughout the entire sermon or the entire book of Hebrews. Christ is faithful, so we are faithful. This is one thread. And the writer opens Hebrews chapter 12 with these few words, as Chris just read aloud a minute ago. Let's go back there again together. Therefore, which means go back and read Hebrews 11 since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Think about all the people mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. Characters in the story of Israel. Think about the idea of the cloud in the story of Israel. The presence of God. Now we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The cloud is, is a picture of the Holy Spirit. We are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Because of that, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let me pause here for just a moment. Sometimes we get caught up in sin conversation, and there's actually things in our life that are hindering us as well that may not be sin that needs to go because it's hindering you. It's a weight. Some of us have activities or relationships or thought processes or habits that are not necessarily sinful, but they need to go. Because they're hindering you. They're an unnecessary weight. It's like walking around with a backpack for no reason. So he says, let us throw off everything that hinders or trips us up. Things that get in the way. And and the sin that so easily entangles. And this is what sin does, by the way. This is what sin does. It entangles us. It wraps us up. It captures us. It enslaves us. Sin and enslavement go hand in hand. He goes on to say, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Now, if you're not a runner, you just skip over that verse because you're like, I don't know what you're talking about. Okay, I run to the table and back, you know? Um, But there is this picture all throughout the New Testament of uh, of running, of a race, of a journey. But specifically here, when this writer's writing to a group of people who are being physically persecuted, he is saying, run with perseverance. Be steadfast. Keep going. Don't give up. You got this. Come on. Come on. Keep going. I don't care how slow you're going. Keep it up. I love seeing people on the side of the road run, like run, who you, can, who you know they ain't run in a while. <laughs> Their form is terrible. And it's like, are they walking or running? We're not quite sure. Um, but they're doing it. Yeah. They're doing yeah. it. And we're in our car. <laughs> Being judgmental and condemning. Some people, I'm like, why did you have to wear all of that gear? You know? Like, I can tell you ain't run in a week. Or a year, or two years, or whatever it may be, you know? Like, but they're doing it. And there is this call throughout the entire New Testament for you and for I to run yeah. and to keep going. It's hard. Let me just tell you something following Jesus is hard, it's difficult. And some of you aren't told that in your formation. Mm-hmm. So when it got hard, you're like, oh, yo, peace out. See you later. When it got hard in church, dipping. When it got hard in the relationship, peace out. When it got hard in terms of the sin that entangles you that you thought was better, that actually is enslaving you, ah, peace out. But then I ask, how's it going now? Is there a better alternative? There's not. Why? There's not. It causes death, okay? Look around the world. Run. Continue in the journey. Persevere. There is a journey marked out for us. That's why we're called Emmaus. It's a journey of healing. It's a journey of process and transformation. Keep it up. Salvation, to me, friends, here's my theology of salvation. It's not just a moment, but it's a journey. It's justification and sanctification, it's a whole process that we enter into. We were saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. It is a journey that we are in. We have to persevere. So, how do we do that? We fix our eyes. Somebody say, fix our eyes. Yes, on Jesus. But we just read in Hebrews 11 that uh, faith is actually um, having evidence in the things that we can't see. What the author is getting at here is that our heart and our mind must turn its attention from one thing to another. They must attach themselves to something else, specifically here, Jesus. Jesus. To fix our eyes on Jesus is to turn our attention from one thing to another. We have our attention, our focus, our mind, our heart oriented on Jesus. When we get distracted and tempted over here, we reorient our mind. And guess what happens? It's wild how in our own brain, new neural pathways are created. Turn our mind and our attention to Jesus. That's what keeps us going. He's the pioneer and he's the perfecter of faith. Now, the NASB says, or the New American Standard, says that Jesus is the author of our faith. The author and perfecter of our faith. And I find that utterly compelling for two main reasons. Reason number one is that to be an author assumes a story. To be an author assumes a story. It assumes a narrative, does it not? And the second is that the word author is the prefix of the word authority. So to be an author assumes a story. We are in a story, a larger story, much bigger than our own, of which Jesus, based on the passage, is the author, the pioneer, the originator. And that the word author is the prefix of authority. So to have faith in Jesus is to submit to him as the authority of our story. He is the writer of your story. You aren't. He is the originator of all of life and your story. Adrian Von Combs says, I need to, you and I need to, come to an awareness of who I am in relation to my divine origin." You did not create yourself. You know how I can prove it? Everyone in here has a belly button. I heard that analogy over the sabbatical, and I was like, that's so good. To be reminded that you did not create yourself. Look at your belly button. so good. And weird at the same time. We have to be reminded of our divine origin. He is the author and he is the originator of our story and the story of the entire world. And as the writer, he moves this story of redemption, not just our own, but all of history, toward completion, towards wholeness, and to perfection. Jesus is a finisher. He doesn't start the process and not finish. He always completes it. He is going to complete this large story that he is writing. Anybody here struggle to finish things? Like, you're a great starter. You're like, I'm going to do it, you know, and three weeks go by and it's not been finished yet. Like, I get, I get that. I'm that way. Dramatic starter, not a persistent finisher. But I'm working on it. I'm in process. Over sabbatical, I started to cut a trail through my woods because I'm an outdoorsy woodsman, if you did not know. <laughs> uh, I'm offended at your laugh, but uh, I began the process of cutting this trail through my woods, but I have not yet finished it. Jesus is a finisher. He hasn't just started the work in your life and dropped it. He will finish it as you allow him. He hasn't just started the act of new creation and redemption by way of the inauguration of his kingdom through his death, burial, resurrection. He will finish it all. He is a finisher. So the first response, flowing under Hebrews, is faith. It's the first thing, faith. It seems simple, but there's a lot of complexity to what faith is. But the second is this. It's holiness. Holiness. Holiness might be one of the least taught on doctrines in all of the scriptures. We live as though it isn't there. We kind of gloss over it. It's like a, a socially awkward friend that you brought to a party that's in the corner just standing by himself. It's kind of weird. And you're like, I'm, what's, what's he doing over there? You know, like, let's just not even pay any attention to him. That's how it feels. It's old and crusty and stale and has terrible PR. Think about it. What comes to your mind when you think about holiness? If I were to ask you, how are you doing at being holy? How would you respond? I found it interesting. um, The Google Ingram Viewer. Has anybody ever used that? The Ingram Viewer where it it shows word usage over a span of time? Anybody ever found that before? It's very interesting. This is is what it shows for the word holiness over the last 250 years. The usage of the word in documents and books and Scanned articles. Look at that drop-off. Do you know what's happening in the late 18th century and the early 19th century? The last revival. The second great awakening. Massive movement of God happening in the early 19th century and late 18th century. Look where holiness was in its usage. What's happened since then in the Western world? a slow drip and decline. What's happened with holiness? It parallels its decline. Something to this. Something to this. Now, we uh, at Emmaus are part of the, the Wesleyan tradition, Wesleyan church. It's the tradition I grew up in. But my own association with this word is rather distorted and has been distorted. And so for the last few years, I've been on a journey to rediscover its beauty and meaning Because the picture of holiness that came to my mind was of my grandmother having a beehive wig that came in a box that she would wear when she went to church. No kidding. A wig in a box that was a beehive shape. 1960s, man. Like, that was the picture of holiness, no jewelry, no makeup, no jeans, no movies, certainly no dancing, no cards, and really no fun at all. That was what holiness is. And that might be what you think of when you think of the word holiness. A 2006 Barnes study called uh, The Concept of Holiness Baffles Most Americans revealed a couple of things for us as people of God in the Western world. Although this is a little dated, I don't think it's gotten any better since then, so... Check these results out. The first thing they revealed is that Christians or believers do not seem to understand the concept or significance of holiness. We're ignorant of its meaning, utterly. If I asked you what it was, you would have an answer, another person would have an answer. The second is that we do not personally desire to be holy and therefore do little, if anything, to pursue it. It's a research study across thousands and thousands of believers in the U.S. However, this is very encouraging. The data identified a remnant that understands holiness, wants to live a holy life, and is engaged in its pursuit. The piece said this, the challenge to the nation's Christian ministries is to foster a genuine hunger for holiness among the masses who claim they love God but who are ignorant about biblical teachings regarding holiness. There is a remnant of people. There have always been a remnant of people throughout the history of the church and the people of Israel. And I think that there's a remnant in this space, in this community today, who hunger for holiness and an understanding of what it is. I think, friends, that it needs to be reclaimed. It must be. If you want revival, if I want revival, if you want renewal, and I want renewal in the world and in the church, then we have to reclaim holiness. It's not just gonna be from one large, big worship event in a stadium, it's gonna be ordinary, everyday holiness. Look at history. Look at it. We have to reclaim it. And I'm a 30 year old pastor, okay? Holiness is not a sexy word. I get it, but it's needed. Greatly. And despite our oversight, it's glaring all throughout the library of the scriptures. In fact, to not notice it is probably to not read it. In some form or fashion, it appears over 600 times in the Old Testament. And most of us think it ends with Jesus. Oh, but guess what? It occurs 250 times in the New Testament. All of this centered on the explicit imperative and command to be holy because I am holy. Yes, that is in Leviticus multiple times, but it is also repeated by Peter. And all throughout the letters of Paul, he affirms this notion. And all in this book of Hebrews over 20 times throughout the letter and sermon. Most clearly stated in Hebrews 12, verse 14: Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to what? Be holy. For without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Without holiness, you won't and the world won't experience the goodness of and the power and the manifest presence of God Almighty. Now, this verse is in context as the writer reminds these believers that they are God's children. And because the Father is good, he does discipline. Jordan and I are learning now how to discipline our spicy little almost two-year-old named Selah, and we need your prayers. Okay? It's a process. But there are two meanings at play with this idea of discipline. One is the notion of correcting children, Parents know what I'm talking about. The correction of children into a certain way of living, into certain behavior and ways of thinking about the world. Was that nice? Was that nice to hit your little brother? No, it wasn't nice, okay? No, it wasn't. The other day, this might be like, this might get me in trouble. The other day, Sam was like, pull, like pulling on my beard, like ripping it, you know? Thankfully, she can't pull anything on top, you know what I'm saying? Thank you, God. Um. So she's pulling on. I was like, girl, I just kind of, you know, yanked on her hair just a little bit. I was like, and she started, ah, doesn't feel good. (laughs) Don't do it. Have I gotten my beard hair pulled again? No. I had to do some correction. If you're like, I don't like his parenting techniques, then I'm sorry, okay? Your kid's wild. But anyway. (laughs) Okay. Good to be back. All right. Uh, But there are two different connotations. Correction of children. And the other connotation has this idea, going back to the running metaphor, specifically around training. Around training. So God functions as a father, a good father, a good parent who disciplines. But he also functions as a trainer as well. He trains us in the race. He doesn't just say, okay, welcome to the party. Go for it. Have at it. I'll meet you at the end. No, he's along the way training us in the way. So the Greek can have these two connotations. But the most clear is this picture of parent and child. He goes on to make the claim. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his what? Children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? We know some. Do we not? How does it usually turn out? I don't know that it does that well. We can, we, can, we can debate it. If you're not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate. He's saying if you're not disciplined by the father, then you're an illegitimate child. Not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. Now, some of you are probably very triggered by this right now because of your father. and I I, I want to be very sensitive to that. The father is full of love and compassion and mercy and grace, and he corrects out of that posture. There are various ways to correct and to discipline. I think we know the ways that Worked on us and didn't work on us as children. I know the ways, I'm learning the ways that Selah responds or doesn't respond to discipline. He disciplines with love. And he invites us into intimacy that does change us and trains us and corrects us. But it says, we have all had fathers who discipline and we respect them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of Spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us For our good. And part of faith is to trust that that's true. And that's hard. That's challenging. I get it. It's very difficult. In order that we may share in his, here's our word, holiness. Now, as we recapture and gain clarity around the concept of holiness... We must first understand that holiness begins in God. Not with us. Holiness begins in God. Even in the call to be holy, it is because I, the Lord your God, am holy. It begins in him. It originates in him. It is the very essence of his nature. All other attributes of God are marked by his holiness. The one time that he gives himself this description is In Deuteronomy and in Leviticus, he says, I am holy. I am that I am, and I am holy. Even his love, he is love, but his love is holy. All other attributes of God are marked by his holiness. Literally, it's his first name. The Holy Spirit. It's right there begins in him. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, God, who is our father, trains and corrects us so that we can participate and share in this holiness. Sharing in his essence or in his innate character, in his being. Now, the word share in this verse can also be translated as to be partakers of. To be partakers of. The Greek word is meta-lambano. Can you say that? Meta-lambano. Great. Wonderful. Making sure you're awake. <laughs> um, the word is actually an eating word. It's a meal word. It means to eat with or to commune with or to receive. So, Whatever holiness is, or whatever it means to be holy, it is something that we receive and partake in as though a meal from the goodness of our Father through the sacrifice of Jesus and by the indwelling of the Spirit in us. 2 Peter 1.4 reiterates this. He has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. The desire and the will of God, Emmaus, first Sunday back from sabbatical, is that you and I, as dearly loved children, would partake in the communion that's already happening in the Holy Trinity. And the way of holiness is actually good and beautiful and better. We don't set the table for God to join us. The table's been set. He says, come and join the society of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it is when we participate in that communion that we experience the essence of holiness because it is his very nature. I found it very interesting that when the text says that that he disciplines for our good, the Greek word is "simphero," and all throughout the New Testament, this Greek word is also translated as better, better. So the text could literally read, he disciplines for our betterment in order that we may share in his holiness. Holiness is our betterment. It's for our betterment. It's for your betterment. Now, next week, I plan to wrap up the series expounding a bit more on and seeking to define what holiness actually is and what it means to be holy. Um, But for today, I just kind of wanted to whet your appetite a bit and get you thinking about holiness and wrestling with the definitions that you already have, the presuppositions that you might need to drop or rethink. But the one thing I wanted to communicate today is that to share in holiness is to share in a meal with God. It is to share in communion with God. And it is actually for our good and for our betterment. Now, that posture has great implications. We will expound upon those. But you and I have been invited to commune with God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, to participate in his divine nature. Weinkub goes on to say that holiness is the moment-by-moment impartation, I love that word, the giving of the life of Christ to the human heart. That is what holiness is. During sabbatical, I I hung up a picture in our living room of an ancient Eastern Orthodox icon, a depiction of the Holy Trinity. It's called Rublev's Trinity. And I have a picture for you guys to see in our uh, living room here. Of course, it's a modern adaptation of the ancient icon. But this has been the wallpaper on my phone for quite a while, the original piece done in the 15th century by Andrei Rublev. And I have been fascinated by this piece of artwork because it depicts this kind of circle with Father, Son, and Spirit having a meal together and the front of the picture, the painting, is open. And it's as though it's, it's inviting you in to partake in a meal. This, to me, friends, is the visual or the picture of holiness. To partake in Fellowship to partake in the divine nature. And we get a chance every single week as a rhythm, no matter how you feel, no matter how your week was this past week, no matter what you're going through, no matter your frustrations, no matter what it is to come to the table as an embodied way for us to receive an impartation, to partake in the divine mystery, to partake in the holiness of God. That there's something mysterious that happens at the table that transforms us. So that's what I wanted to do today. To share these words with you around holiness. To help you recognize that the invitation is to share in a meal with God. And that because of what Christ has done on the cross he has invited you and I to be partakers of the divine nature And so, what if, what if holiness is actually much better than you could have ever imagined? Yet, to receive an impartation requires surrender and yielding and a giving up of oneself. We're going to come to the table. Feel free to come to the altar. At the very end of Hebrews chapter 12, it talks about a posture of worship. It's in awe and wonder over God, and it specifically says that our God is an all-consuming fire. When you come to participate, when you partake in the divine nature, you are not just participating in a meal that's ordinary necessarily. You are actually participating in an all-consuming fire that brings warmth to those who are cold. That brings light to those of you who are in darkness. That brings purification for those enslaved and entangled by the weight of sin and cleanses you for your betterment. So, would you bow your head? Take a moment to yourself, reflect in silence as we prepare our hearts to come to the table. When you're ready,